welcome once again, everybody. And um, I want to uh, say a big thank you for the invitation to be here. I didn't say this last night, but it really is um, a pleasure to be here. Uh, I mentioned seeing old friends and so on and so forth, but I didn't uh, thank uh, the elders and your pastors for the invitation. I'm just very grateful for the chance to come here and share these things with you, though they are not always the things we'd like to talk about. Uh, sometimes we need to be made aware of the shape of the idols in the culture around us. And if that's what we're called to do today, I hope that's fruitful, if not always pleasurable. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll jump straight in to session three. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious God, we thank you for one another and for this time that you've blessed us with. Please watch over us. Give us that mental energy and clarity that we will need to make the best use of this opportunity to understand ourselves and the unknown and secret sins from which we should repent and the dangers in the world around us of which we must be aware. We pray particularly this next few hours will be fruitful for the edifying of this body, your church here at Trinity in Moscow and the glory of the name of Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so just to remind you where we came from yesterday, I see a few new faces. We began session one, a brief overview of the philosophical and historical background to the critical social justice movement. Then we had Vody Bockham's response, uh, four lectures from 2017, which I tried to cram into six or seven minutes, and I do encourage you to go back and listen to those lectures, because really, as I listened to what he said, as I mentioned yesterday, he said all the things I really wanted to say. It was a rich and deep and gospel-centered response to the sins and errors of the critical social justice movement. And then, just to conclude that first talk, I highlighted one sin that we really do need to make sure that we've repented of. Before we can start addressing the problems arising from a movement that pretends to find discrimination where it is not, we have to make sure that there is no actual discrimination and racism and ungodly sexism and any other kind of ism in our churches. Then in the second talk, I highlighted one of the oblique dangers of this worldview to the church. It is not the case, I think, that we are going to find throughout this church and CREC churches across the US, a widespread capitulation to critical social justice ideology. I just don't think that's realistic. It's not the case that we're guilty of every sin that we could be guilty of. That's just foolish to imagine that. However, some of the cultural and in the case of the second session yesterday, psychological backdrop which has made the rise of the critical social justice movement possible, has also caused other problems in the church. The psychologization of everything, as I described it. And in conversation with a few people after yesterday, it strikes me that there's probably more to say about that so that we make sure we get as clear a picture as possible and I don't miscommunicate with anybody. Um, I'm not saying feelings don't matter, for example. Maybe we can talk about some of those things in the Q&A session, and we can just dig a bit deeper into them. What I'm really saying is, because how we feel matters, we must occupy ourselves with things that are not our feelings. Remember C.S. Lewis. So anyway, that's yesterday. So what I want to do today is to highlight another aspect of modern life, which has been essential to the widespread propagation of of the critical social justice movement. Without this, 
it's very hard to see how this movement could have taken off and grown as it uh, has done. I'm referring to the rise of social media. Social media is the woke platform. And Christians have just jumped straight in. And it seems to me that this may be not such a good idea. <coughs> he said. <laughs> Perhaps slightly understating the gravity of the problem. To highlight the gravity of the situation we're in, I want to read um, a short section. These are five paragraphs. This is quite an extended quote. I have come to believe that this is the most important page yet written on the state of contemporary culture and particularly its relation to technology. This was Neil Postman writing in 1985 in Amusing Ourselves to Death. This is the foreword. Some of you are nodding already because you remember this. This is worth the price of the book. So it can take a minute or two to read it. Quote, We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, the prophecy of Orwell's book of that name, Thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. For we were free and remained so. But, he continues, we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. You remember Big Brother and so on and so forth. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, People will come to love their oppression and adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there will be no reason to ban a book, for there will be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. You remember what the feelies and the orgy-porgy and the centrifugal... So the feelies are like the movies, except you don't just watch the moving pictures. You've got kind of uh, metal handles that you hold on to, and they deliver sensations of heat and cold and so on to you, the feelies. The orgy-porgy is a kind of sexualized political rally, and the centrifugal bumble puppy is a big organized game that kids like to play, where there's this big ball, and you throw it into this massive hopper, and it goes, zoom, and shoots out somewhere, and you've got to go and catch the ball and throw it. Organized games, in other words. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny, quote, 
failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book, which is amusing ourselves to death, is about the possibility that Huxwell, Huxley, not Orwell, was... <laughs> you see the problem you might have if you got that, don't you? Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Well, this lecture is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, is right. He was writing, remember, in 1985 about the dangers of television. He's spinning in his grave, poor guy, as he surveys the dystopian nightmare into which we have been plunged. He can scarcely have imagined how Huxley's prophecy... I mean, what Huxley must think, if he can look down upon us, if... How the vision that he saw has come to pass. In summary, this is the core of what I want to say today, the critical social justice movement could never have taken off without a technology that circumvented the human capacity to think and replaced it with that technological equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy and the centrifugal, whatever it's called. And the problem is this. We have been so alert for tyranny. Are we not the people who are always ready to spot the tyrant when he's out there? Is that not right? This is the CREC, for heaven's sake. We know a tyrant when we see one. And so we've gone and jumped on the same social media bandwagon and swallowed the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, and now we're enslaved to our own, not fears, but loves. Now, it's become fashionable to bewail the multitudinous harms of social media. Now, and this is not just a Jeremiah. I am going to rant at some point. I'll notify you when the rant begins and when it ends. Oh, thank you, my friend. But I want to begin, I want to try and at least justify the rant with a bit of background, philosophical and historical material. And then I'll rant. Well, no, I'll, I'll explain a little bit why social media has become so important to the critical social justice movement. Then I'll rant for a little bit and tell you all how terrible it is. And then at the end, I promise you, uh, a plea for a uh, wise, focused, thoughtful engagement with technology as appropriate, which allows us to sustain long-term attention on things that matter. I'm not a technophobe, I promise. I have a phone. It's recording this talk, okay? Um, but I want to encourage us to think a little bit more carefully than I think all of us have been doing about the dangers of this technology. Right, so background first. Let's just think about media in general. The crucial philosophical point to grasp here is that nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. Not even the media in and through which information is presented. In other words, we begin with a commitment to presuppositionalism. It's one of the uh, questions I was asked by the session of the church here at Christ Church in Moscow when I was, uh, my ministerial creden credentials were uh, reassigned and held by that session, which I'm very grateful. And, and they asked, so are you a presuppositionalist? And there was this 
bated breath, because I'd never met an Englishman before. You know, it's like, we don't, we don't know whether they make presuppositionalists over there. And I was very happy to be, able to, to be able to reassure them that, yes, they do, and yes, I'm one of them and one of you. Presuppositionalism is the view that there's no neutral anything. Everything is created by God, it's for God, and everything should serve God. And every action, every thing, every physical space, every activity, every domain of human activity should be discipled and brought under the rule of Christ and used to glorify God. And if it's not, it's not neutral. It's evil. Now, presuppositionalism is far more than that. It's a whole, whole apologetic methodology. But at the core of presuppositionalism is that either or, black and white, good or evil, light and darkness, polarity. And the irony is this. We are presuppositionalists everywhere. We're presuppositionalists in our theology, obviously. We're presuppositionalists in our reading of history and literature. We're certainly presuppositionalists when it comes to science. It's just the science. No, 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 it's not. There is no possibility of neutral anything. And then as soon as we turn on our phones, we abandon presuppositionalism and imagine we just, it's just a tool. You ever said that? Social media is just a, no, it's not a tool. The medium, in other words, is part of the message. Certain forms of media don't just privilege certain kinds of information. They actually contribute substance to what is being conveyed. Now, in the background here is a whole trajectory of writers. Marshall McLuhan, um, uh, the the author I read from just a few minutes ago, Neil Postman, Ken Myers, some of you know Ken Myers, uh, Mars Hill Audio, uh, Nick Carr, who wrote The Shallows back in the early 2000s, um, all trying to highlight in some way that the, the way in which something is conveyed is part of what you're receiving. And I was trying to think of a best, best way to illustrate this, and I thought, well, courtesy of the public health situation in San Francisco, I'd appall you all on a Saturday morning with this illustration. So pardon me. It makes you feel you wish you hadn't had so much breakfast. Imagine for a moment that you're living in San Francisco, which is perhaps difficult to imagine, but if you were, this would be easy to imagine. You wake up one morning and find graffiti smeared on the side of your house, written in human excrement. Tragically, not difficult to imagine for some residents of San Francisco. Imagine that the graffiti is blasphemous, really insulting to you personally and to Christ. They know you're a Christian and They've picked up the human feces that litter the streets of that once beautiful city and they've smeared it all over your house and you're like, right, not having that. So you go and pick up a big pile of human feces and you write, Jesus is Lord, across the side of your house. And you celebrate your victory over the forces of darkness because because what counts is the message. Can you see the problem? There is no such thing as a neutral medium. We all discovered this when Kindles were invented, didn't we? And you discover, actually, that they're great for some things and less good for others. So, actually, it's, if you're going on vacation and you go to a beach somewhere and you're, you're taking half a dozen paperbacks that you're only going to read once, probably putting them on a Kindle is better than taking a big pile of books in your suitcase because you haven't got space then to you know, take so much you know, stuff with you on holiday. But there's no free lunch when it comes to technological advantages. There are downsides as well. And those of you who who study will probably have discovered by now that Kindles aren't so great for really engaging with. If you're the sort of person who writes in your Bible, 
you found Kindles frustrating when you've come to read theology books, correct? Right? There's no such thing as a neutral medium. I had a great example of this at Christmas. I teach a couple of Bible and theology classes at All Saints in Fort Worth. And um, this one student, uh, very, very kind, she wrote me a lovely Christmas card, which she'd handwritten and hand-engraved with calligraphy on the front of it. Absolutely beautiful. And it meant something that a post-it note slapped on my study door saying, Happy Xmas, would not have meant. The message is the same. But it's not the same, is it? Because the medium is the message. Most abstractly... The message that is conveyed, the information content, does things. And so does the way it's conveyed. So that's the philosophical point. Now, historically, it's important to realize this is nothing new. Every single time that a new technology has been developed, it has allowed us to do new things. And every single time that it has come and stayed, there have been good things. And every single time there have been unforeseen costs. You go back thousands of years to the invention of the stirrup. You know what a stirrup is. It's part of the equipment for riding a horse, which is wonderful because it helps you to be more stable on a horse, helps you to, to look in different directions. It also helps you to fight from horseback. You look at the invention of the wheel. Wheels allow us to make all kinds of useful vehicles, but they also allow us to make vehicles that do destructive things. Think of uh, a really well-known example, like the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the steam engine and the flying shuttle and the spinning jenny, and it massively increases the productivity of whole swathes of the Western world, at least in Britain and parts of Europe and later in America. But of course what it does is it immediately puts out of business anybody who's got a hand loom. Unforeseen Social costs in that case. You saw similar things with um, the production line. So Henry Ford, I mean, I know there were one or two precursors, but Henry Ford invents the production line, and suddenly a guy who works in a car factory can buy one of the things he's making with three or four months' salary, which is about what it costs now to buy a car. It's amazing. You go from a car being an unaffordable luxury to being something that everybody could own. You think, isn't it wonderful? And it is wonderful. But you who work in the car factory have gone from a craftsman who makes cars to a drone who every 17 seconds screws this widget into that widget and then pass it on to the next person. Nobody saw that coming, did they? What has that done to you as a person? Now, of course, it's possible to do a job like that and just become great at it, but get absorbed in it and find significance in it. But isn't it easier to imagine doing so if you have the finished product? And that's, that's the one that you've built, you and your team of four other guys. See, the unforeseen cost of technological development. To put it another way, the right use of technology requires not just an embrace of the technology. It requires the personal and theological maturity to embrace it wisely. Everything that we're given in the form of technical and technological innovation is a blessing. Everything created by God is good and is not to be rejected. We mustn't become Luddites. But the problem is, in order for us to keep up with the good, we're going to have to get the maturity and the godliness and the wisdom and the discernment we show in appropriating these good things is going to have to grow at the same time. And the problem is it doesn't always do that. 
or at least it's very uneven. So, <clears throat> thank you for the coffee. I'm going to take a sip of that because now I'm going to begin my rant <laughs> about the evils of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all those other things that I've never heard of because I'm not your age anymore. Um, where, do we, where do we start? Like any medium, it teaches us to love what we enjoy in it. You know, kids who'd never watched TV, never heard of Bugs Bunny, and suddenly their eyes are opened to their wonders. And I remember when I was tiny, you know, five, six, seven years old, it was kind of hard to pull it. Mum would call, and it's like, dinner time. I'm like, what? It teaches us to love what works best on that medium. So what works best on social media? Social media privileges the superficial, the glib, the provocative, the overstated, the inflammatory, and the simplistic. And it under-privileges or deprivileges the thoughtful, detailed, lengthy, nuanced, accurate representations of the complexity of the world that we live in. So it teaches us to love and teaches us to become superficial, glib, provocative, overstated, inflammatory, simplistic people because we become like what we love. One way it does this is through the fragmented nature of the medium itself. And you see this. When did you ever see a, you know, a, a, somebody launch a social media app and say, right, what we're going to do is um, the way the feed is going to work is it's going to present entire 5,000-word essays one at a time. And you're not allowed to scroll past this one until you've read it. You have to read this first, and then you have... It's like, no, 140 characters. Well, we think you're already smart now, 280 characters. But you get fragments, don't you? And the next bit is right there, adjacent to where you are. Imagine, if you're listening to music, you're trying to teach somebody, instead of trying to teach somebody to read and think about the world by giving them a social media account, you're trying to teach them about music. But the way you do it is not by saying, look, here's Beethoven's Fifth, and here's Ina Khan and Nacht music. Right? What you do is you go, da-da-da-da. Oh, that'll do. Right. Uh, Unclined up music, seven seconds. Right, now, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to... No, we're teaching them music, you see. No, you're not. You're teaching them to despise music and to embrace, if that's the right word, this fragmentary, frivolous... And because separated from the context that gives it meaning and helps you understand whether it's good and what's true about it and what's beautiful about it... Uh, Trivial and frivolous, non-music. It's what you're actually doing. So we're training our minds to be unable to concentrate on anything at all for more than a few minutes, and we're training our affections to love the distraction. And the, the, the love of the distraction, this is where it starts to get insidious, and this is where my rant becomes more angry. No, not really. Yeah, Saturday morning, what are we angry about? It turns out that this is all deliberate. We're not so far from Brave New World after all. The uh, uncertain but likely future positive frisson of ooh that you get from scrolling or swiping or clicking is addictive. And the people who build the platforms have known this for years. I mean, it, people keep glued to Facebook for the same reason that people sit at fruit machines in Vegas for hours on end just kind of pulling the handle because it's like the, the possibility but not certainty of a future positive reward keeps you hooked 
So when you start something unknown, you get this little dopamine hit. We all know what dopamine is now, don't we? Because we've all at least read enough to know that. It's like the happy feeling hormone that you get. And what happens after the initial hit, the, you're now reading this thing which gave you this little free son of, ooh, 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 pleasure. The pleasure diminishes as the dopamine level subsides slightly. And you know instinctively, because you've been trained by that platform, that if you click something else, you'll get a little frisson of, oh, this is good again, oh, this is good again. And you can, uh, laboratory rats have been starved to death by being placed in a little chamber that's got a, a lever you press for food and a lever you press for a dopamine injection. And they just sit there going, dumpity, 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 on the second one, and they starve to death. Some of the world's best computer scientists and coders have been working together with top psychologists for two decades to hack your neurobiology, and you are just not equipped to handle the consequences. In fact, one of the most well-known uh, episodes in this sorry tale was... Um, you heard of Azza Raskin? You heard of Azza Raskin? He's the guy who invented infinite scrolling. Right? You, know, you remember back in the day when you'd reached the bottom of a web page? And people realised when you reach the bottom, you're requiring the user to do something that... They might not do, click another link or something. So if, if we could find a way of developing a technology that would allow us to keep scrolling indefinitely by constantly feeding new content at the bottom of the page, then we could keep people hooked for longer. So as a Raskin comes up with this thing, right? In 2019, he apologized to the world for inventing infinite scrolling. He wrote that time equivalent to 200,000 human lifetimes is wasted every single day by people infinite scrolling. He now works for, among other things, a charitable organization that seeks to cultivate the ethical use of technology. Talk about Pharisee turned apostle. So some of you here are teachers, yeah? Hands up if you're a teacher. Come on, let's see the teachers, right? Have you noticed that the children in your class can't, con can't concentrate on anything for more than two minutes? Yeah? Now you know why. They've been trained not to concentrate. There are other fairly well-documented effects. I'll just run through these briefly and miss out the gory details. Physical health, there's obvious and not so obvious physical health effects. Um, uh, social media use displaces physical exercise, uh, especially if you're doing it six or eight hours a day. It's kind of hard to go running when you're like <laughs> doing this. Um, and leads to all the kind of health effects, and I'm not going to go through the whole cavalcade of them that are associated with lack of physical exercise. Lack of sleep, all the blue light that comes off when people kind of sit there in the evenings, and when you find it hard to doze off, and I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up about this, but I suspect half, two-thirds of people in this room, because that would be about average, would have suffered from some kind of uh, onset insomnia in the last month. Okay? Well, if you look to the blue, well, smartphone screen, and the blue light from that screen... Uh, more than three, less than three or four hours before you go to bed. That's part of the reason why. Emotional health. I didn't realize this until I was doing some reading on this. It turns out that the, you know those little emojis, like happy face, sad face, brain explodey face, um, all those different things. Um, reliance on those actually teaches people not to be able to express their emotions in words. You think about how emotions work, and we talked about emotions yesterday, and um, Emotions are quite complicated things, and actually you, you do need to talk about how you feel to people, like, like your spouse, if you want to get on well. Um, I look at my wife here, who's studiously kind of, she got her notes, and I'm making note of this, Pastor Jeffrey. <laughs> um, 
You, it, and, and to learn to understand the complexity of how somebody else feels and to learn to express it yourself requires a certain amount of erudition. It's difficult to do that. And we are removing the natural training ground for people to be able to express complex ideas and complex feelings by replacing it with head explode emoji. The worst, perhaps obvious, element of the content of the material is the one that we're all thinking about. If I, if I ask you the question, what is it that accounts for 25% of all searches, 30% of all videos, and 35% of all downloads on the internet? You all know what I'm talking about. There are some analysts who think that the internet could never have gotten off the ground in the first place if it weren't for pornography funding the enterprise. No one knows how much money is spent uh, on pornography worldwide because even though some of the big companies have to publish their results, so much of it is done privately on individual social media channels and so on. Um, Probably, if the figures are to be believed, somewhere between 70 and 90% of people, it's about 70% for men, 90% for women under the age of about 40, uh, have used pornography in the last couple of weeks. That's the best statistics, most recent statistics. And you might look around and think, yeah, but yeah, not us. No, we're Christians. Well, I've got news for you. Um, the statistical data suggests that Christians use pornography at a higher rate than the global average. I'll tell you how they do the work. It's basically, um, it turns out you can correlate porn subscriptions with postal district. And then you can correlate postal district with church attendance. And so you can work out who subscribes most to pornography. And there is a positive correlation between church attendance and porn subscription rates. It doesn't tell us who the people are. It does tell us, actually, interestingly, on which days people tend to subscribe. People tend to subscribe less in highly Christian areas of the country on Sundays. Apparently uh, challenged or uh, struck in some way by the fact that probably they really shouldn't be doing this, but Christians more than make up the deficit on the other six days of the week. So anybody who thinks that pornography is something that's somebody else's problem, well, you need to think about that again. And maybe this is something to talk about, some practical steps about that in the Q&A. We can talk about that later. But really, it's straight out of Huxley's dystopia, isn't it? Just, just think again to Huxley's vision in Brave New World. There, what you've got is the state's got to provide all these activities and funds them, and they're kind of given free to the population. Here, what's happening is you're all paying. You're all voluntarily buying the machine and doing the stuff yourself on it that keeps you hooked to this trivial, glib, superficial, and banal world which is mediated to us through a medium that makes it impossible for us to think carefully and rationally and thoughtfully about it. Here we are, conservative Christians. We have been the whole way through COVID, you remember? For years beforehand, keeping our eye out for the intrusive eyes and the long arm of Big Brother. We know tyranny, don't we? And we knew how to resist it, or we thought we did. We got our eye on 1984, and there we are, Brave New World sitting right in our hand. And the irony of it all is where do we go to complain? Where do we go to rant and rave 
about the tyranny of Big Brother. We go to our social media accounts. So that's the state uh, that we're in. Uh, We have uh, bought into a package of media presentation that makes it impossible for us to think our way out of this mess. Uh, It's easy to see, isn't it, why this is so critical and uh, so central to critical social justice ideology. Just think think back to what we were talking about yesterday, the feelings-led culture, the outrage that is produced by um, claims of oppression and so on. What would you design... If you were trying to design a medium to promulgate critical social justice ideology, what you'd want to do is to have something which, as soon as you felt something, as soon as you felt outraged, you could express your outrage. And then you'd want it to be communicated immediately to as many people as it possibly could be. You'd want it to be impossible to delete it, and however much you think you can delete a tweet, as too many celebrities have found out, you can't delete tweets. Sorry, it's out there. Somebody's screenshotted it, and they're sharing it even if you're not. Ideally, what you want it to do is to compartmentalise you into groups so that you only get to hang out with people who are like you. So is there some way where we could build an algorithm which means that once you've expressed that you like this and this and this, all you ever see again is this and this and this. You know, if you sit on TikTok for 40 minutes, 40 minutes is what it takes to learn that what you really like watching is cat videos and uh, Speed Ray Rex or something else. I don't know what you want. But you, you flick through it for a few minutes and it basically feeds you exactly what you want compartmentalizing you into a group that will feed your own interest. Now, if it's cat videos, that's a bit banal and silly, isn't it? That's the the feelies. But what if it's something more politically or ideologically toxic? Do you know what your children are watching and reading? How could you? So that's the background that we find ourselves in. Now, the danger is, of course, I come across as an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy who's, now he's a pastor, and now his kids are grown up. Now he wants to stop everybody else having the fun that really he used to have when he was 20-something. Well, let me tell you, when I was 20-something, we didn't have this. Um, but let me give uh, just a few final thoughts that I hope will reorient our affections and also give us some actionable path forward that may help us to figure out what to do next. Bear with me one moment. Ask yourself the question, what is really important to you? Think carefully. Think about the last year. Think about the things that have happened in the world. Think about the things you've read about. You've read about many different international news events, celebrity marriages, everything else. You've also had a whole bunch of things happening in your family, good things. Birth of a child, perhaps some sad things. Uh, Death of a friend, uh, neighbor moved away. Think about all the different things that have happened to you. Which things are really significant to you? It's not at all obvious that the things that are significant are the things that we spend our time reading. Just think back to what C.S. Lewis said. Again, this is um, in Surprised by Joy. Um, C.S. Lewis, if you think Neil Postman will be spinning in his grave, this is what C.S. Lewis says about the newspapers. (gasps) Gasp. Quote, Even in peacetime, I think those are very wrong who think that schoolboys should be encouraged to read the newspapers. You think, why I wouldn't give my son to pick up a newspaper. (laughs) Actually, my son is not 
basically on social media. I'm talking about my son. Ben's doing a great job. Girls are as well. But look, nearly all that a boy reads there in his teens will be known before he is 20 to have been false in emphasis and interpretation, if not in fact as well, and most of it will have lost all importance. Most of what he remembers, he will therefore have to unlearn, and he will probably have inquired an incurable taste for vulgarity and sensationalism and the fatal habit of fluttering from paragraph to paragraph to learn how an actress has been divorced in California, a train derailed in France, and quadruplets born in New Zealand. C.S. Lewis is terribly worried about the devastating impact of the Times newspaper on this younger generation. Can you imagine? And this is, this is a difficult thing, you know, because we, we read C.S. Lewis, yes? And we think we're learning from him. Man, we are not learning. We're not learning a thing because we are living in a completely different world. The things that actually form us as people are so radically different from the things that formed him. And they're not even the things that we think we're looking at. They're the things we're looking through. They're the media through which we view everything. And we fail to realize that that has a determinative, constitutive effect on who we are. So you look at a picture of C.S. Lewis with his pipe between his teeth and his pencil in his hand and his book at his desk, and you think, I could do that. No, you can't, actually. You can't. I can't. We can't until we realize what all of these technologies are doing to us and start to take some control over them. I want to give you an example of um, somebody who did this. A great book by Cal Newport. I think it's, um, there's a number of books he's written. I've mentioned him before. I think this was in deep work. And he talks about Mennonites. I think this is interesting. This is one of the things that I think makes me think that Cal Newport has some kind of Christian background. Maybe he's a believer. I don't know. Anyway, he talks about the Mennonites. Now, Christian brothers and sisters. We know them as the people who reject technology, yeah, like the Amish. They got driving around in those little quaint buggies and you know, no telephones, but just with a kind of telephone box at the end of the road. And isn't it ridiculous? Well, no, they don't have a Luddite-like attitude to technology, actually. The way that it works in communities where it's working well is like this. Anytime that somebody wants to try something new, they're allowed to do it. Okay, you can go and try that for a period of time, and then what we're going to do, once the trial period is over, we'll assess the benefits, and we'll assess the downsides as well. And if the benefits are really great, and there are no downsides, then fantastic. So, you know, horse and buggy, that's great. Um, But if there are downsides, then what we're going to try and do is see if, can we get the benefits in some other way, And if we can't, are the benefits really worth the downsides? In other words, you're not just thinking about the pros. You're thinking about the cons, the the opportunity costs. And the example that he gives is um, there was a community where somebody, a very, very skilled craftsman, and they've got a woodworking shop, and they're selling products, and some metalworking going on as well. And somebody wanted to buy a CNC milling machine, a very complicated computer-controlled thing, like four-axis uh, a tool, uh, robotic arms and this kind of thing and some of you know how these things work and th- they said okay well let's look into this um, and they didn't just go and buy a CNC milling machine it would be quite expensive just to try it out but they thought about it a bit they said well look um, it, it seems to us that this is probably okay but we don't want to hook ourselves up to the electric grid that we've made that decision already now you might think that's the wrong decision I think that's the wrong decision but 
you see what they're doing. They're actually thinking about the pros and the cons. So they're thinking, is there some way I can get the benefits of this without being hooked up to um, Baal via the electricity grid? Okay. And the answer is, yes, you can. You just buy a generator. So it's not Luddite at all, actually. It's considered, thoughtful, weighing the pros, weighing the cons, weighing the opportunity costs, and evaluating those things differently from us. Yeah, of course. But at least they're evaluating them. They're thinking about them. They're thinking, what, given the limited amount of time that I have, given the limited amount of resources that I have, what's the best thing for me to do? Now, here's a final example. Um, how many teenagers you got in the church here, Brian, roughly? 50 or 60. <laughs> 50 or 60. Excellent. So, teenagers, um, I have a plan for you. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to give to one select adult... A, a choice. They get to flip a switch, and if they flip that switch, you don't get to use social media at all for the whole of 2023. Instead, you get to read Augustine's Confessions, or George Herbert's poetry, or Barvink's wonderful works of God. Okay, so which adult would like... <laughs> would, would you flip the switch? Why? I'm not going to ask you to tell us. I mean, it's, it's obvious. You'd flip the switch because it's like it's best for them, isn't it? If, if you, anybody here, if you could flip a switch and all the teenagers would spend the year reading Augustine's Confessions, George Herbert's Poetry, Barbink's Wonderful Works of God, you would flip the switch because you know what's best for them. I'm really sorry, you don't get to flip the switch for them, but you get the flip, to flip the switch for you right now to decide how you want to spend your time, how you want to be formed, how you want to be shaped, what kind of person you want to become. You get to do that for yourself. So please do so thoughtfully and wisely. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful God and Father, we ask for your help in considering all of the implications of buying into a set of technologies which has done empirically measurable harm and is in fact part of the way by which destructive and ungodly ideologies are being promulgated in the world around us. We don't want to become childish, dark age Luddites, just running resentfully from anything new. We do want to be thoughtful and wise. Help us to learn from those wiser than us who've gone before us and who have expressed skepticism like C.S. Lewis, like Neil Postman, about the benefits, supposedly, of these technologies that were then being offered. And may we approach the decisions that we face with circumspection and wisdom as a consequence. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.